Welcome to At the Threshold, a podcast for ministry leaders during this new, unsettled season in the life of the church. We are your hosts, Ashley Alley Crawford and Shelley Pitts. And we are both clergy in the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately a thousand churches in the states of Kansas and Nebraska. Shelley works with clergy faith and wellness with the Great Plains Conference. And Ashley is the Clergy Recruitment and Development Coordinator, and we're sharing this from the Office of Clergy Excellence. Our focus here in At the Threshold is to host a conversation with and for clergy in order to describe what's happening, ask questions to help get us unstuck, and encourage the heart of pastors and leaders in this liminal time in which we find ourselves. Liminal may be a new word, but a new season calls for a new word. Liminal means a threshold from what we've always known to, well, we don't know just yet what life and ministry is becoming. Our goal here is to find a little light at the threshold. In our conversations, we are seeking to describe some of the dynamics that we're seeing and identify some questions and possibilities that are bubbling up for us. Ultimately, we hope you leave today with your heart encouraged in some way. Each time we gather, it's our hope that you'll glean one or two things to think about, act upon, or pray through. Well, welcome to everyone who's joining us today for this important conversation. Our topic today is the first in a three-part series that we're calling Back to School, Theology 101. Just as students are returning to classrooms right now, we are inviting pastoral leaders to return to learning as well, just to help us sort through some of the confusing messages that are really present in this season. The local church has been brought into the headlines in this pandemic in several notable ways. Namely, whether churches should or can be restricted from meeting, and also the role of churches in the earliest spread of the virus through funerals, weddings, and even singing and worship. We even sometimes hear on the evening news things that God should or shouldn't be doing for us in this time. These scenarios reveal some about our theology of the church and also of God. In our time today, we want to tease out some of these theological frameworks uh, that underlie a solid position of faith and lift up some things that will point us towards a faithful witness of God in these turbulent times. We have asked religion professors from a couple of our wonderful undergraduate institutions to join us today to help us lay the foundation. We are so glad to welcome first Dr. Jackson Lazier, who is an Associate Professor of Religion and the Chair of the Social Sciences Division at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. He has a PhD in Religious Studies with an emphasis in early church history from Marquette University. He is the author of Irenaeus on the Trinity, published in 2014, and has a great research interest in Irenaeus. He tells us that he is currently working on a book on the saints directed toward Protestants. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We also welcome the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Redding, an assistant professor of religion at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, Nebraska. He is ordained within the Baptist tradition and is quick to tell you, though, that he is a Baptist from the South and not a Southern Baptist. (laughs) He served 
in churches with, uh, in youth, as a youth minister before becoming a professor. He completed his PhD in Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel at Vander Vanderbilt University. His research interest is Daniel, Revelation, and the way communities read and use biblical apocalyptic literature. Dr. Redding, we are so glad that you could come and join us today. To begin, Dr. Lazier, we will start with you. Will you tell us something about you that maybe didn't show up in your bio and help us get started by naming some of the main theological questions that you are seeing emerge during this season? Yes, thank you. And thank you all for having me. I feel um, honored to be a part of this conversation. I think the work that you all are doing in the churches and kind of the front lines during this time as in every time is really crucial. And I, I've always seen my calling as equipping and raising pastors. So I feel like this is right with what I want to be doing. Um, something that didn't occur, didn't come up in my bio is uh, I'm married, um, my wife, Julie, and we have three children together. My wife, Julie, is a hospital chaplain. And so, and, and when I was doing my work, my PhD work at Marquette, in early church history, which is, you know, uh, perhaps not the most practical of things, she was I was coming home every night to dinner saying, well, this person in the second century said this, and what about this, you know, and she was saying things like, well, I spoke to, um, I spoke to a couple whose, whose baby died today. And it just, it just reminded me of um, how important keeping the, the theoretical or the theological uh, wedded to the practical is, and that she always sort of pulls me back and, and grounds me. And so I think in this, in this time, that's exactly where we need to be. Um, I think probably the dominant question that I have seen raised in my local congregation that I attend, as well as among my students, and even with my children, is, is you know, the general question of, well, where is God in this? And I think that that question occasions uh, some good answers, and I think it occasions some pretty bad answers. We were talking before this began, and I made the comment that I think is true about the only thing that is practical, or excuse me, the only thing that is predictable in this whole corona pandemic has been the uh, that we knew bad theology would come out of this. And I think um, it's unfortunate because I think it adds pain um, and, and even more chaos to an already chaotic time. Um, so I would imagine that's an area we want to discuss today is where is God? Uh, probably another one, and then I'll pass it on, is, is some of the more practical, how do you do ministry? I know that Eucharist has come up and been the occasion of many um, debates. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I, you know, that's been, that has fired up and, um, and, but it's a, it's a real, um, it's a pastoral care issue. It's a, you know, many people, the Eucharist is so central to our practice. So how do we do something that, that requires, you know, and you can expand this to just human contact and, and, and touching and hugging, I think is a part of our tradition, you know, the holy kiss, etc. How do you do these things when, when it's unwise to be in direct contact. Um, so those two things I'd say is what I've seen the most. Thank you so much. And Dr. Redding, can we hear from you? 
Sure. Uh, can everybody hear me? Give, give me a th give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Good, 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 good. Um, so one of the things that didn't emerge from my bio, well, my accent comes out pretty immediately, being Southern. Uh, I I don't think I have much of an accent. I forget that I have an accent, and my wife says, "No, you have an accent." Uh, uh, and people, all, all my students, are like, "Dr. Redding's from the South." I'm like, "Yes, I am. I know." Uh, but no, I grew up. My dad was a Baptist minister. He worked as a prison chaplain for a long time. Uh, not a prison evangelist, a prison chaplain, like actually working to meet the needs of all the people of all the different types of religion, religions that exist within the prison setting. My mom is a nurse, uh, so I'm not squeamish around hospitals or blood. Right. So anytime I like go to the hospital, they're like, are you OK? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And I was like, sure. Can we put the prices right on? Um, but I, when I grew up, I thought everybody had access to the church like I did because I was what people would call a church rat. Like I was always at the church. Anytime the church doors were open, I was there. Um, and that was because like, I, I, I considered the church like a second home. I was like, what? Like not everyone gets to just run around the church and do whatever they want. And dad's like, well, you can't just eat that candy. I'm like, but it's our candy. He's like, no, it's the church's candy. I'm like, but that's still mine. And he had to like explain and like lay out things like that. So I have a deep passion for the church. Uh, I originally wanted to be a pastor, um, but decided to follow the path towards academia just to see where it would lead me. And it's led me here. Uh, the other thing, other thing too, is my wife is I'm married and her, she got her master of theological studies from Vanderbilt as well. So she was there whenever I was there doing my PhD, uh, nothing scandalous or anything. She wasn't like a student or something like that, but she has Methodist experience. She was an editor for Upper Room Books in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she helped edit the devotional guide, the average devotional guide, the, 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 whatever, I forget whatever it's called. Like she, she was the one who edited that and organized that and all that stuff. So, but she's Presbyterian. So it's, it's weird because like she's Presbyterian, I'm Baptist, but yet we keep like gravitating toward Methodist things. And we're like, sure, why not? Um, but my, so as I'm, I'm a biblical scholar, that's my, that, that's my trade. That's my profession. Uh, but the, the theological questions that I see emerging in our current environment are theological questions that I think people have been asking for thousands of years. Uh, questions that the biblical writers were asking. The, one of the things that I keep one of, it's like pinging up against my head is the question of why aren't we listening? Uh, why are we not listening to our past? Right? Like whenever people use the term unprecedented to, de to describe COVID, I want to correct them and say the disease is not unprecedented. Our poor response is unprecedented. Right, because in 1918 they had the flu. For God's sake, I mean plagues. Plagues are nothing new. My plagues are all over the Bible. They're all over the place. And my question is, why? Why are we not listening to the people who worked so hard and sacrificed? How are we not looking for where God was leading them and where we know they went wrong? Right. The the example I like to think of is the way that the kingdom of Israel fell. Right? The kingdom of Israel did not fall 
because of outside enemies invading it. It fell because it turned on itself. It fell because the, 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 the small nation, the North and the South split and started to fight one another. And I feel like that God is, God is saying to us in those moments, like pay attention to what they did wrong, see what they did wrong, look at how they divided themselves and don't do that again. And I, people just aren't doing that. We are dividing ourselves. We are destroying one another from within and our, from family relationships to communities, towns, cities, states, nations, right? I feel like Jeremiah and Ezekiel are somewhere being like, hello, like we, we told you all this stuff and you keep doing it. Like you keep doing it. What is wrong with you kind of thing? Um, so that's, that's my one, my one question is why aren't people listening, right? Why aren't leaders and laypersons listening? Why aren't we being the prophetic voice that we may need to be in some instances? Uh, and also the other question that is in my mind is what opportunities do we have to move forward and to grow? Because it's interesting to hear a lot of uh, a lot of my college students and some uh, people who attend the, the churches around where I live, and they say, "Well, we want to go back to the way things were. We want to go back to pre-COVID." And they they talk about COVID. They talk about life before COVID like it was some utopia where everything was great and there were no struggles and that the churches were doing just fine. And I have to correct them and say like, y'all, the good old days were not the good old days, right? Maybe, maybe God is speaking to us through this moment and saying, what do we need to change? How do we need to change? What opportunities are in front of you? Because, you know, whether we like it or not, like God's going to be there, right? It's, it's not an issue of whether or not we're going to like look under a rock and not find God. Like God's going to be there. It's a matter of us heeding those opportunities. So those, those are my two questions. Why are we not listening? And what opportunities are in front of us? Great, great questions. I think how we even name what the questions are um, help us kind of approach it, um, approach the, the concerns and the, the challenges that we're facing in this time. Um, well, Dr. Redding, you alluded to the fact that this isn't the first time that there's been kind of a disease or <laughs> pandemic or plague or whatever terminology we want to use. And so I'd like to ask each of you to kind of reflect um, in your area. Jackson, if you'd take a, if you'd think about or help us kind of think about um, church history and, and Dr. Red, Redding, um, how you, if you might help us think about this kind of biblically with a response, how, how do we approach um, this? We do sort of seem to um, make this our, uh, we're the first people that have ever experienced this, but, but Dr. Leisure, will you, will you take us back a little bit um, in, in maybe the way that, that the church in the past has spoken um, into the idea of pandemic? Um, what, what can we learn that could kind of help us as a framework for being able to, to navigate this moving forward? Yes, um, so there certainly have been many plagues, um, and there also have been, if we can widen that a little bit, just just tragedies. Um, so I think of the very early church, probably the earliest um, unexpected um, thing where they might ask, where was God that happened, was the experience of martyrdom. And in the first few centuries, um, it was a legitimate reality that if you uh, were baptized and embraced the faith, 
that that you could pay for it with your life. You know, we Jesus says in Scripture, "Lay down your life uh, and follow me," or "Take up your cross and follow me." Um, and that we, we read that metaphorically today, but that was a reality. Um, so, and then I think about in the fourth century, um, uh, someone like uh, Augustine, Saint Augustine, dealing with the um, fall of the Roman Empire, which by that point had you know had embraced Christianity. So. Um, trying to figure out, you know, that would be like, um, in our context, America suddenly fall, falling to a different, um, you know, nation and, and the stable thing that was always part of our, our, our past. How do we think about life now in the unknown? And it just goes on and on, Middle Ages, you know, and then and the plague. And, and uh, I, I see all these connected with this unexpected event that doesn't immediately fit into um, a belief that God is in control and is the, um, you know, creator and God of the universe. The way that I think the church has um, very effectively responded to these is to maintain faithfulness without having all the answers. Um, so, so the martyrs, for example, uh, they didn't always know why this was happening, and you hear some of their laments. Um, but what they did know is that they needed to maintain their faithfulness in the midst of it. That this was a a challenge. I don't know that they would have used the word test, as that implies some things that probably they wouldn't have wanted to. Um, but a a challenge of faithfulness that is really um, sort of a life and death situation. You know, do I follow? Uh, Jesus and my faith and everything I know into this unknown, or do I um, do I renounce that because I guess I was wrong, I misunderstood, and I'll embrace some other easier way? Um, now I don't know that 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 sort of life or death situation translates perfectly to COVID, but I do think there is a sense that um, we can or our people can easily lose faithfulness. Um, in the face of something like this, because it is, um, I agree with Dr. Redding, not necessarily unprecedented, but just this, this complete uh, chaotic time that we can bring in, you know, um, the, the violence and, and the racial injustice that we're seeing in the streets and on, on our, we can bring all that in, the divisions in, you know, our, our context of America politically, all of it maybe um, produces this unprecedented feeling within ourselves of, of instability, existential angst that, that people, certainly my age, have never experienced. You know, maybe 9-11 was, was the closest analog. Um, it's very easy to, at this point, lose faithfulness, not maybe um, directly, like I'm going to renounce my faith, but, but in that what you focus on. So your focus just becomes every day this, the angst as opposed to keeping your eyes on Jesus, to you know, use biblical phrase, and focusing on that. Now, that doesn't mean that we are completely, you know, unaware of what's going on. So, I mean, one of the great stories coming out of the Middle Ages with the plagues, the plague is, is it was the Christians um, who would go back to these ravaged towns and, you know, at grace, great risk to themselves, care for those who were left behind, who were still alive. You know, this is kind of the beginning of the hospital movement. Um, and I think that's a, that is an um, example to, to us as well. Um, so, so, you know, 
what we see, I think, the lessons from the church is their ability to maintain this deep faithfulness in, in the context of uh, uncertainty and, and doubt and without always having the answer uh, to that question I raised of where is God in this, but, but maintaining faithfulness anyway. Great. Good. Thank you. That's, that is a, a good reminder for us um, on, on some of the ways that the church in the past has navigated it. Thank you. Dr. Redding, what about you? Can you uh, give, us, give us some kind of frameworks or guideposts to, to hold on to from scripture? Yeah, no, I mean, so I think that uh, this, the, so we as, as people of faith, we have to continually reassess what is scripture, right? We have to continually reassess what is it and how is God speaking, how is, how is God working through it, with it, by it? Um, we, we, we have to continuously remind ourselves that if we're going to believe it's a living text, then we have to say it's a living text. And when things are, things are living, they change, they move, they, they adjust for situations. And I think in, given the current moment, uh, the, to, to use the word that you just used, Ashley, I think it was like guidepost, I think. Uh, we have, as, as people of faith, we have no better resource than scripture, right? Because it is filled with stories of people who want us to learn from them, who want us to say, we, th these are our stories of God. These are our stories of how we interacted with God and what we did with God and, and how we messed things up more often than we didn't. And I think that one thing that the scripture tells us, both the, the Hebrew texts, they're both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian uh, New Testament, is that God, God chose people God has shown us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again what God expects and God wants from us, but we just keep messing it up. And we act flabbergasted when things go bad. And God's like, I told you this was going to happen, right? Like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah like told their people and their leaders and they said, don't get, don't get in bed with these foreign nations. Don't don't let them hold sway over what we do or the nation of Israel is going to cease to exist. And they were right, right? Everything that they said was going to happen, happened. And the people were just flabbergasted. They were like, my Lord, what did we do? And Jeremiah's like, duh. And Ezekiel's like, look at what you did, you dummies. Like, what did you expect to happen? And they're like, oh, and then they continued to make those same mistakes over and over again. And we see that with the, the way that Jesus uh, critiques religious leadership in the New Testament, right? That's one of the things I have, to, I have to debunk with my students and other people is that Jesus was not anti-Jewish. Whenever Jesus critiques religious leaders, he's not being anti-Jewish, right? That's wrong. That's, that's someone who's anti-Jewish trying to say Jesus was anti-Jewish, to reinforce being anti-Jewish. No, Jesus was critical of those people because well, in, in the same way that we are critical of charlatans and pastors who get up and clearly want to make money, right? Like whenever somebody gets up and says like, I want a new yacht or something like that, we're like, nah, like that is not, that ain't what's happening. And that's what Jesus was doing. That's what Jesus did. And we killed him for it, right? Like 
Moses was oppressed and never got to see the promised land. Elijah and Elisha were kicked out. Ezekiel was literally sent to the wilderness to die. Jeremiah was tied up and thrown into a pit. We strapped Jesus to a tree and left him there dying for trying to tell us to do the most basic things, like treat each other with dignity, treat each other with respect. If you have something to give, give it. Uh, don't trust don't trust governing forces that try to pull you apart as far as you can throw them, right? Stuff is going to get hard, but you have you have to continue on together. Don't be torn apart. And, and as soon as things get hard, people turn on each other and they divide and they fight. And it only makes things worse. And I feel like the, the scriptures are just filled with, with those lesson, lessons of those people, both Jewish and Christian, crying out to us, saying, here, here is how we messed up. Please learn from our mistakes, because here is what God is saying to you, at just as what God said to us. And instead of rising to that challenge, we are more likely to just default to what we said before, like, oh, this has never happened. How did we see this coming? How could we have predicted this? And when the scriptures tell us over and over again that that's the exact same language people used at the time period, how did we see this coming? How could we have predicted this? And everyone who predicted it and said, if you do these bad things, it's going to happen, are looking at them and they're like, we told you it was going to happen. It's like, well, we didn't believe you. It's like, will you believe me now? And it's like, no, we're not going to believe you. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? So the looking at scripture for me in this point in terms of a guidepost is finding solidarity with the people who are frustrated because people in leadership are leading their people astray. Uh, but also finding profound hope in the power in knowing that God, that, that God is there with us and God is there leading us and God is still, still pulling us and wanting us to do and to be better, despite however many times we have messed up and completely done the opposite of what God wants us to do. The Ecclesiastic scripture, nothing new under the sun comes to mind. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. And like yeah. the, the Ecclesiastes guy, you could tell was just like, I'm tired. Like, I'm going to stay yeah. at home and I'm going to write some today. <laughs> like tomorrow, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the fight again. But today I'm just going to drink my coffee and watch SportsCenter and lament <laughs> a little bit. And sometimes you got to do that, right? Sometimes, sometimes you got to take a personal day, right? Sometimes you got to say, I'm going to sit at home and eat pancakes. I'll see you tomorrow, right? <laughs> It, it, write that down. Ecclesiastes equals pancakes. Yeah, <laughs> got it. <laughs> this is really helpful as we explore the, the past and the history, um, our scriptures, and what we can learn from those who have gone before us. And I'm wondering if that can move us into exploring where we are today. Pastors are serving their churches as the resident theologian. That's a, that's a key piece of their job. And in this season, they're also finding themselves as chief technology officer, health commissioner, racial reconciler, and so many other um, jobs that they never imagined doing before. Can you help us look at what theological constructs might help pastors navigate the hardest questions that they and their communities are asking because they are the theologians? You have helped navigate many other, through um, helping teach others to be um, critical thinkers in terms of theology. How can you help our pastors today um, set up their theological construct to help those who are they are serving. Either of you can jump in. Um, go ahead. 
Oh yeah, no, thank you, Jackson. Um, I so I would say something that one of my one of my pastoral mentors, um, one of my pastoral mentors told me based on something that someone told him, and I sorry told her, uh, and I continually hear it over and over my head again, and it's don't ever underestimate the small things. Right. Sometimes in ministry, we try to do these big, grandiose things with big ideas and and try to try try to shift the world on its axis and deliver thundering sermons or uh, powerful Bible studies. And. They don't click. Right. The example that I use is like whenever you get your kids, like I don't have any kids, but I have a nephew. And. One year, I was super pumped. He loved Nerf guns. And so I got him this big Nerf gun, and he he was excited about it. But within an hour, he was just playing with the box, and the Nerf gun was sitting there. And I was like, I could have just gotten you a box. But then I realized, well, if I hadn't, done the, hadn't gotten the Nerf gun, he wouldn't have got the box. And it, that reminds me of a lot of ministry things that I've done, stuff that I did not think was a big deal, completely changed people's lives. Um, and that that's powerful but it's also kind of scary but i find that relieving because in in the the little moments of ministry is where things can really take hold it's where the 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 genuine conversation that you have with someone the uh empathy you display the laugh that you give the companionship that you offer right the 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 little the little the one line of your sermon that you just kind of threw in there on a whim that sticks the one moment of vulnerability when working through something tough in the text it it connects with people it resonates with people we we one of the bad things about ministry is that we often don't get to see the fruits of our labor we don't we don't get to see the things that we have done come to full fruition Right, like the the young people that we are leading, like the, the twenty somethings and thirty somethings that we are leading through Bible study, theological study, things like that. We won't see the church leaders they'll become in their sixties or their seventies, but that's what we're laying the foundation for. And we are the children that we welcome into the church, the children that we welcome into a multi generational, sometimes multi racial environment, and make them feel safe and make them feel welcome completely changes the world, right? Like we never know when we go and we, we sit and we color for a, we, we color with a kid in the nursery and tell them how much fun that was with them. Th- th- those are profound God moments, right? Those are profound moments that shape kids' lives, that, that shape people's lives. And for us, it was just a throwaway, right? It's like, okay, I need to run to the bathroom. I have 10 minutes. I'm going to swing by the nursery and see what's going on. And you sit down with little Jack or little Alice and you color a lizard. What does the lizard have to do with the parable of the sower? I don't know. Who cares, right? We're hanging out with this kid and making that kid feel important. And those things are where I think our profound and most meaningful work can happen and often does happen. Thank you. And to you, Jackson. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good answer to this. I was thinking along the same lines that sometimes we compartmentalize our work that, you know, here we do our theology and our sermons and our Bible study, and there we do our 
our practical work and our technology. And I think there's a way to integrate it all that you can in helping a parishioner navigate Zoom or allowing them to help you as my students often do. Uh, that can be a profound theological moment. Um, and um, you can, I think it takes no more work than to, to be theologically engaged yourself in these questions and then to just let it come out of you, to almost let it seep out of you in every interaction that you have. So it might not be the case that a parishioner will ever say to you, where is God in this? Even though that is the, the cry of their heart through every moment. But it might be the case that they need um, they need an idea of what to do with their their kids on this morning because you know they're they're homeschooling, you know she has a meeting, etc. And then and you can as the pastor step in in some service, and in a way show her where God is right. And so I mean I just I, I just think that these things all go together, and um, if we're intentional about um, being sort of being the resident theologian in everything that we do. Um, so, but I, it takes intention, I believe, and it also takes being theologically engaged yourself that you're doing this work kind of, you know, in your own time. Um, and I know, I know that's hard and that, but that's what I'm trying to do right now as a professor with my, with my students because we're navigating many of the same things that you all are figuring out zoom for online classes and figuring out how to do all the what we love face to face that we can't do anymore um and, and um I, I just echo uh dr redding that um, the little things that you do the 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 vulnerabilities especially i really like what he said there because i think i think when i actually you know, there's such pressure being the professor, being the pastor, being the resident theologian. Gosh, that's such a pressure thing. And then when you show humanity that, whoops, you're actually muted for the first five minutes of this wonderful thing that you just did. I, I actually think that really connects with people, and that shows their humanity. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a uh, Christological logic there. You know, it's the humanity of Jesus that drew people to, to God. And so what are our, as the, as the resident expert, theological experts, what are our hu human sides that we all have that we can allow to be shown that might be the thing that is the theological, um, you know, real um, profound thing you do that day, so. Thank you so much. We're gonna explore now this deeper and how we in this conversation can integrate what we've already heard with what we're experiencing and to, to see how we can make a difference by sharing out of um, our deep well of wisdom and vulnerability. And we're gonna invite um, the uh, time to go into some small groups. We'll send you to breakout rooms and invite you to look at some of the, um, the questions that we'll put in the chat box that you can see there, to see what's bubbling up, to see how has your own theological framework been shaped during this season? What has captured your attention from this, what the speakers have shared already? And what would be helpful for you in your theological foundations, in your preaching, in your teaching, in your daily lives right now? So we will send you to breakout rooms, invite you to join those rooms, and we'll gather back um, in about uh, 10 minutes. We'll see you soon.
Well, thank you for thank thank you for reminding us of these uh, really kind of essential truths. I Jackson, you used the phrase "seeps out." Um, it, it it sort of seeps out in us, and I think that that's what um, that's one of the things that has sort of become apparent to me during this time is that those whose reaction is sort of to to blame or to uh, to grumble or to whatever it seeps out quickly <laughs> when our defenses are down. So I want to just ask you all, um, particularly kind of as we're thinking about um, this question, where is God in the midst? I want us to think for a little bit about God's character. Um, and uh, I think that is a deeply theological question that that is um, important for us to kind of navigate at this time. So, Jackson, would you give us a would you just would you kind of invite us to, to think uh, about where God's presence, particularly in terms of God's character um, during this season? This might be helpful for for our pastors as we as we um, are able to kind of lay a foundation for for those around us. Well, I think that God's character is love. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of First um, John. I think the you know clearest description of the essence of God, um, and and with that love comes a deep caring, um, a a uh, that's manifested in a walking with. Um, which we see um, through both testaments, um, sort of manifested in a different way. And then we also have the promise of it in Acts with the Spirit that we still have today. Um, and so, and then a God who understands. Um, you know, we don't have a distant God um, who has not walked in our shoes, you know, literally. <laughs> I mean, not our exact shoes, but has not walked on our on our earth, and not. I mean, you know, first century Palestine was not the most peaceful of places. So, uh, when we are praying to to God about our uncertainties, um, this is nothing that's unfamiliar, and that He cannot um, resonate with, and then bring, you know. If not understanding um, comfort, maybe some peace. You know, Jesus says, I give you peace that surpasses all understanding. Um, I think it's in the times like this that we finally understand what that surpassing understanding part of that means. Because it's easy to have peace when everything's going well. But that's a peace, you know, that maybe the world brings. The peace that is Christ is specifically, because remember, he said that in the night before he was going to be crucified and leaving them. And so I think it's a specifically a peace in the midst of chaos. Um, and we have a God that, that brings um, that to us. And I think that is all important to remember and hold close when we start to navigate into the treacherous theological waters, which are trying to offer some sort of an explanation for where, where God is. Because um, that, that, I think, is the foundation that we can move into then you know, where it's appropriate. And it's not always appropriate, particularly in pastoral moments, um, but where it is appropriate to, to remember that as we move into that question. Would you say more about that, about the, when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate? Oh, man. Put <laughs> you um, on the spot. Yeah, no. Um, I, I think in incredible times of grief, um, when when someone you are you are visiting someone who has had someone die as a direct result of COVID, um, 
just as in any sort of that that immediate situation, it might not be the best time to begin to offer some sort of a an apology and the sense of a defense of God and you know where He is. That's not what they maybe need right then. Um, or, so I, I think I think in the in the really raw times, and and we have to remember, I think this whole time right now is very raw because we are we are in it. Um, so it's a very discerning. I think the the theological reflection where we can come in and, and try to try to sort of understand, uh, you know, a sovereign God, uh, those questions, a sovereign God and, and a God with free will and a fallen world, all those things going together, that might be some theological reflection um, a bit removed from that immediate, you know, um, time. At the same time, if if that's the need you perceive your parishioner is asking in those moments, then, then you might be ready to respond to it. Um, I think it just takes humility it takes it takes uh you know treading lightly it takes following someone who you know is expressing the need following their lead not not rolling over them um you know those sort of things and these are really the skills that are pastoral care in any situation you know i would give that same response i think for at any point someone is experiencing grief yeah, yeah, you're definitely inviting to a level of kind of self-awareness and uh, and restraint and discipline and operating from that position of discernment, which, as you say, we ought to use all the time. Um, but but oftentimes in this, um, in this in these especially tender times, it's important, especially important. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Fredding. What about you? How how do you sort of see the the character of God? Um, at work in this in this season and and how can it sort of seep out in and through through the work that we're called to do as pastors one of the things that one of the elements of god's character to the i agree with everything that jackson said and another thing that i want to add to it from a hebrew bible perspective in particular an apocalyptic perspective because as we studied apocalyptic literature that's one of the things that we I continue to engage with students over and over again is, you know, how, how is this story or how are these pages depicting God? What is God doing? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them say like, man, God's like, God's all over the place. God doesn't mess around. God, God is moving a lot. And that's one of the things that, that first came to my mind when you said God's character, I thought God is restless, mm -hmm. right? God is, God is constantly moving and wanting us to move. God is constantly shaping us and changing us and, and trying to mold us into the things that God has made us into be, uh, made us to be. And sometimes that requires uh, calm reflection. Other times that requires intentional action, right? The God, God's restlessness is not limited to, well, you should be anxious all the time. And if you're not, then you're not doing God's work. Like that's not, that's not what I'm trying to imply. I'm trying to imply is that God, God, God is changing. God, God is wanting us to change, wanting us to move, wanting us to grow. And for us to think anything other than that, I think sells short what God has intended us to be. Because I think that. So this is. Here's the best way I can say it. God wants us to want to do those things, right? That's one of the that's one of the powerful gifts of free will uh and that that's one of the ways i talk about it with my students when we discuss the concept of free will is when i say you know if, if you have a boyfriend girlfriend significant other 
would you rather have someone that is with you because they have to be, or would you rather have someone who wants to be with you because they want to be, and they actively choose to be with you? And so that that's the language that I use around free will is that God wants us to want to do those things, right? God, God doesn't, God, you know, it'd be nice if, if the example I've heard before is it'd be nice if God would like show up one day at church and like bump something in the back. Like, oh, sorry, my bad. Like, I'll, I'll pick that up. Keep keep going, Pastor. Because uh, that's not going to happen. But the way that God works with us is that there's this restless want from God that God is continually wanting us to want those things ourselves. And in doing that, then we are we are truly living into what I feel God's character is and what God's character wants for us. Not doing things out of compulsion, but we're not saying what's well, the right thing to do. Saying no, it's it's what I want to do, kind of thing. It's how I want to live. It's how I want to be. Thanks. We're going to be joining back into our uh, big group here. And as we gather back, we'll have some opportunities for folks to ask questions. And so um, invite us to, to consider what those uh, will be and, and how we can respond as they gather back here. In the meantime, I'm wondering, as they're kind of gathering in, there's a couple of things, uh, Dr. Redding, that you mentioned. You mentioned wanting us um, to, to, that God wants us to um, want to grow. And you also mentioned early on in this conversation, one of the questions that's been popping up is what opportunities do we have to move forward and to grow? Could you speak just briefly as people are gathering back about um, what, what are some of those opportunities yeah. that, that we have to, um, to move forward and to grow? Um, this is one that maybe some of you may kind of scoff at, but if based on my experience working in churches, um, our, our big, beautiful buildings are sitting big and beautiful and empty while our people still hunger and want the things that we are trying to give them and try to show them. And so maybe one of the questions that we can dare to ask is, do we really need these big buildings? right what what does our what does the current status of our congregation look like and does the physical space where we meet reflect that right do we uh are, are we paying tens of thousands tens of thousands of dollars a year to keep the heat on and the air conditioning working and the water pipes working well but nobody's going to be in this building 90 percent of the time so how can we use this space how can we use this space to meet the needs of our communities, right? What can we do? Do we need this space? Do we need to downsize, right? Can we sell this to the shelter? Can we sell this to uh, the, the daycare that's growing like gangbusters? Can we sell it to, uh, can, can we use it as office space? Like things like that, right? There, there's a, a church in Winston-Salem, a Methodist church in Winston-Salem that its community shifted and the people who were in the community did not reflect the congregants. And so the church would sit basically empty most of the time. So what they did is they, you, they let small businesses that were starting in that area 
use their church as office space for free, rent free. And they considered that part of their ministry. Uh, there's a group there's a group in Winston-Salem called the Institute for Dismantling Racism. It was one man who wanted to begin conversations about this this thing called being anti-racist, right? Not not just not just being aware of racism, but being actively anti-racist. And he he started this back in 06 or 07. And now it's like now anti-racism is like common lingo, right? Something we throw around. And th this church had the courage to say, we hear you and we affirm what you were wanting to do. So use one of our rooms as your office. Take this office space. And the, his, his organization has grown and now takes up like a floor of a building that used to sit completely empty. And it's because the people in his congregation, people in that congregation were like, what can what can we do with this space that is still that still makes us feel like we are doing what we're supposed to do? But also, it's not sitting empty and gathering dust. Thank you so much. Uh, that really helps us to see um, see what is possible um, in this time of out of out of what we have experienced, what we know, what we are living through. That there are things that we can do to move forward and to grow, even right now. So we have one final question for the the two presenters. At the core of our Christian theology is to love our neighbor. Can you speak even just a little bit more to this about what does that look like to during this time, the, this uncertainty about health, there's intensity about that racial justice injustice that you've just talked about. What does this look like to love our neighbor right now? Dr. Lazier. Yes, great question. I, I think um, I think it means to I think it means that what it would in a non-COVID time as well, maybe just in a, a heightened way because there are more needs. So loving loving one's neighbor might in in your community do what um, Dr. Redding just said. This church did for the for this business, right? Um, um, you know, my my wife had this wonderful idea that um, our church could could maybe um, open their Wi-Fi and open their places to, um, you know, parents who um, either don't have Wi-Fi, have not made that choice to to get um, or, or, or need that safe place. You know, it's interesting. Fast food restaurants are doing this. You know, the church should be at the foreground of these sort of service things that are particular and very acute in our time. So I'd say loving one's neighbor means means the same now, um, but it might look different because the needs are different. Um, I think the really challenging thing is we, we often consider love to be expressed in ways that we're limited in right now in the sense of you know, being present with somebody. Um, reaching out to them, you know, touching people, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's, I think we ought not to be unaware of, of restrictions and be, to be wise with what we can and cannot do. And I don't think it's great theology to think I'm going to do this and God will protect me because I'm doing his work. I think you need to, to uh, know that, you know, we as Christians have faced the same risks that anyone does. And so, so, but 
that doesn't mean that you swing to the other side and say, well, I just have to stay home then and uh, not do anything in this time. I think that's a little bit of a cop out. I think there are ways that we can serve and love um, within sort of a safety. Also knowing that anything you do is, is a risk and that too, without going into that place where, you know, saying God's going to protect us because we're Christians. I don't want to go there, but, but it is a risk to be incarnational. Uh, we mentioned that, right? When, when, when God entered into our world as a human, it didn't work out well, right? I mean, he, you know, they killed him, as Dr. Redding said earlier. Um, that, you know, when we're incarnational in our own service and loving of our neighbor, we do put ourselves at risk. Um, and so we need to be, you know, with everything I said, that is still a reality. Great. Anything else to add, Dr. Redding? Um, yeah, I, I think that we just have to, we have to continually remind ourselves of the, the presence of God and where, where God is and what God is doing, because there, there's not one way to do these things. There are many ways to do these things, right? There, 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 there's many ways to do ministry. There are many different types of gifts, just like the scriptures say, you know, if other people do things differently. And so we shouldn't be trying to mimic what others are doing. We should say, what is God asking us to do? And what is, how is God asking us to be the people of God where we are right now? All right. What, what does that look like? How, how does that look? And when we ask the question about who is our neighbor uh, and how to love our neighbor, we have to sometimes remember that our, our neighbor's not going to love us back. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they have permanently lost their way or that they are quote unquote unworthy of anything. It's that maybe, maybe we're not the person who's supposed to be what they need right now. Maybe we are to turn our attention to other things. Maybe we should reconsider where we're looking and, and what, what we are asking ourselves, like what answer we want to give as a community when we say, well, who is my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? And why are we asking that question? What's the goal, right? Are we, are we genuinely asking that question? Are we genuinely asking for God to show us how to love our neighbor? And so if we are genuinely asking that question, we had better be ready for God to answer. Really good, uh, really good reminder from, from each of you about that we don't necessarily need to overcomplicate this. This really, at the end of the day, um, comes out of a vibrant, um, you know, ongoing relationship with God, and we can trust that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us um, to answer these questions about what love looks like, and it, it can be in very, very tangible ways um, as well. So, well, we are so grateful for your, your time here with us today, and it's just been a good reminder um, about the, the character of God, um, what God's love, what God's love looks like, how we can really be um, be attentive to his spirit in the midst of this time. Um, I've heard you all invite us to lean into scripture, um, to, to invite us to, to some theological reflection in the work that we're doing. 
And so we just uh, really appreciate the, the heart that we've seen from each of you about the church um, and, and the heart to continue to direct us back to God in this season. We do just want to mention about our next two conversations that are coming up um, to help us continue to think theologically. The next um, conversation will be next week at 10.30 in the morning. We'll be joined by Dr. Chris Quam from St. Paul School of Theology, who will be leading us in a conversation for us to think about the theology of Psalms and lament, exploring the importance both of the gnashing of teeth and the nurturing of our soul. The following week, we'll have a chance to focus on ecclesiology and talk about how we understand and live into being the church when we can't gather in one place for worship. Dr. Amy Oden and Reverend Austin Riviera will be joining us for that conversation. You can register for this and other upcoming conversations and find more resources at greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold. Well, when we close our time out each week, we like to give kind of a final word for um, for to sum up our, our time. So I just want to invite um, Dr. Leisure and Dr. Redding for each of you to give us a, a word of encouragement or a word of hope um, for, for those listening today. Dr. Leisure, would you would you give us a word of hope or encouragement? Uh, yes. So one of my great one of my favorite phrases uh, from church history comes from a medieval theologian named Anselm that um, uh, we are, what we're about is faith seeking understanding, meaning that our faith in a way precedes any full understanding. So you don't have to get to this wonderful, full, um, settled understanding of God uh, prior to having faith. And I think that speaks to our time. We don't need to have a full understanding of what's going on. Where is God in the midst of it? Um, you don't need to have the burden to give that full understanding of to your people. What what we are called to do is have faith in the midst of it. And I think that um, uh, that in, it, in itself will be a great theological witness to your people because you will be modeling for them how to how to act and how to live in such an uncertain times. And so. Um, you know, find it through prayer, find it in the scriptures. I, I unfortunately don't have a word of wisdom here because I'm working on it myself, but uh, perhaps together in a community, we can together move into this place of faith, seeking understanding. Thank you. That's a great word. Dr. Redding? Uh, I think that, so my final word is not only is God restless, but God is waiting to see how we will respond. God, God, is, God has issued us the challenge to be the people of God for thousands of years. And that is not going to happen unless we do it. And so the, the word of inspiration, word of hope is God, God's waiting for us to answer. That's a good word. Thank you. And may our answer all be yes, and, and God, we will follow you even in the midst of the difficult times.
thank you so much to our presenters and to each of you for joining us for today in this conversation. And we hope that you've been able to see our new reality a bit clearer, asking great questions and been encouraged for the journey. We hope that you'll find some light at the threshold. We hope that you will listen to the full conversation or share it with someone else as this will be posted and the audio will be on the website that we mentioned or you can look us up on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we hope you have a very blessed day. conversation today about navigating ministry in liminal time. You can find links to join future conversations at greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold or subscribe to our podcast at the threshold on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. As for today, we hope that you've been able to see our new reality a bit clearer, asked a few new questions and been encouraged. And in the days ahead, we hope that you're finding some light at the threshold. Mm -hmm.